Our reading this morning will be from Psalm chapter 8. To the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This concludes the reading of God's word. Perhaps you guys have experienced uh, what I've experienced. Uh, You have this moment where you're sitting in the restroom and you've forgotten something very important. Um, And it's not toilet paper, it's it's your phone. Um, Now maybe this is something for the younger generations, but, but something we struggle with is you have this moment, and I had this moment this last week, it was very disorienting, because I, I didn't have my phone with me, and I thought to myself, what do people do, what do they think about when, when they don't have their phone with them? And, and you might laugh at that, but in many ways that reflects what, what is very true about our lives and of our society. Um, It's something that Leslie Schmucker calls the static in our lives. It's the inner murmur of self-talk. It's the societal pressures around you. It's the constant pull of social media or having your phone in your hands. Or perhaps it's just the general busyness of of your day and of your life. Too often, writes Schmucker, we succumb to the crackling, grace-robbing intensity of the static around us and within us. God's voice is steady and unwavering, she writes, but we must quiet ourselves to hear it. Last week, Josh preached about how we can meditate on the Word of God. Today, I'm going to preach on how we can meditate on the work of God It's true, our culture gives us sensory overload, but our hearts aren't much better. We are ignorant at best and fickle and disinterested at worst. How often we fail to reflect on God's work, his calling for our lives, to reflect on his glory and to worship his majesty. Dr. John Piper helps us summarize our condition. He says, if you can't see the sun, you'll be impressed with a street light. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, you will be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and the majesty of God, 
you will fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. So today, let's not settle for cheap imitations. Let's meditate on the work of God that we may behold his glory and be changed. Let's pray. God, your majesty is revealed throughout all the earth. And so I pray, humble me as a preacher. Give me clarity and unction. And God, give us the humility to hear you and to submit to you. Work powerfully in our hearts, we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, I would like for you to open to Psalm 8. And if you don't, I would welcome you to, yes, take out your phone and look up a Bible app or just Google Psalm 8 so that you can follow along. To give us clear direction, I want to summarize what Psalm 8 is all about. Here it is. As we behold the majesty of our King, we worship the Lord as redeemed stewards over his creation. We're going to ask ourselves three questions. One, who is God? Two, who are we? And three, how should we respond? So our first question, who is God? We read in verse one, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The repeated use of the word Lord, as many of you may know, is actually two distinct words. One gives us God's name, the other his title. Yahweh, written in our Bibles as Lord in all capital letters, is the personal name of God. It's the covenant-keeping name that he gives to his redeemed people. Think about when Moses was commissioned to go back to Egypt to those Israelites who were enslaved there. Moses asked God what name he should say as the person to whom he was sent by, and God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. He says that this is what you should say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Yes, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This Yahweh, this I am, I will be that I will be is the name of God. The second occurrence of this word Lord refers to a title, that he is our Lord, our master, our king. And now notice that this poem is written by David in a congregation of people of the redeemed. It's in the songbook, the worship book of God's people, the hymnal, as it were. And so notice the adjective our our Lord. That's possessive. He's Yahweh, our Lord. And so David writes, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's like he's saying, just think, wonder with me for a moment. Wonder. It's in this moment that David is not distracted by the static in inwardly or outwardly. Instead, he experiences wonder. Do you remember when it was that God said to Moses, I am that I am? It was at the burning bush. And at that story of the burning bush, 
In Exodus 3, verse 3, it says, He, Moses, looked, and behold, a bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And this is what Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. We need to recover that kind of wonder that we behold the majesty of God. When we stop to wonder, we can truly consider his majesty, his greatness, his might, his splendor, his excellence, his worth, his fame, his glory. In the words of Rich Mullins, our God is an awesome God. God has revealed himself throughout all creation, but here we see that he has set his glory above the heavens. His glory far exceeds all that we could possibly see or imagine. As marvelous as the stars are that we behold in the night sky, God is exceedingly greater. He is above that which is above us. Do you remember the story of Job and his friends? Job rested his case on his own righteousness. And how did God respond to him? In Job 38, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched a line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. Our God is an awesome God. David continues in verse 2. Look there with me. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength. If we fast forward to a story in the life of Jesus in Matthew 21, there's this point where Jesus is healing the lame and the blind in the temple, and the religious leaders are unhappy. And there's children running around, and they're saying to Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna, meaning save us. They anticipated God's Savior would come, and here they are saying, Hosanna. And the religious leaders scoffed at this, and they said, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus responded to them, Matthew 21, 16, Yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Think about it. Jesus himself was born as a baby in an animal stable to parents who were poor and uneducated. Now let me pause. Can God work through those who are wealthy and well-educated? Absolutely. But God's modus operandi is to work out his power in weakness. And he does this, continue reading in verse 2, because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. God may be a majestic king, the majestic king, but he does not stand unopposed. Jesus describes God's arch enemy in John 8, verse 44. The devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. We first see this nefarious character in Genesis 3. He shows up as the serpent 
Genesis 3, verse 1, the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the fruit of the garden? From the beginning, he was a liar. From the beginning, he was a murderer. From the beginning, he worked to oppose God. Though opposed, God will not be dethroned. The serpent may have bit the heel of the Messiah, but the serpent's head is crushed. His doom is certain. In Revelation 20, John has a vision of this final battle with Satan's armies. And here's what we read. And the enemy army marched up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, and the redeemed rejoiced. So we ask this question as our first question. Who is God? God is the majestic king ruling over the universe that he created. His majesty, the king. So question two, who are we? Verse 3 begins with this question, when I, or this phrase, when I look. What does that tell us? What does that mean? It means that David is reflecting, pondering, considering. He's meditating on something, and we need to do the same. We need to reflect. David writes, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set into place, when you Consider that, just consider that, the intricacy, the magnitude of all the starry hosts, the hundreds and thousands and millions and billions of stars that are out in the night sky. That's a grand thing, but keep reading. Compared to the grandeur of the stars, David asks a rhetorical question. What is man? At first glance, insignificant. And those without hope in this world often despair at this thought because if the universe is filled with billions of stars, how could my puny life mean anything? I am insignificant, you might conclude. You might say that you are a flower quickly fading a wave tossed in the ocean, a vapor in the wind. So what is man? Insignificant, incomparable. I don't matter. But wait. Let's let David finish his thought. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? How does God relate to us? First of all, God is mindful of us. He thinks of us. His thoughts are toward us. If you've ever experienced being away from a loved one, you know what this means. You are mindful of that person. You think of them often. And so it is with God. He is mindful of us. Now, this could be a terrifying thing if God were an angry tyrant ready to swing his cosmic hammer on the puny little humans, right? But God also relates to us in this way. God 
cares for us. He gives breath and life. He sends rain and sun to cultivate the earth. He protects and provides. He is not simply an impersonal force, a supposed deistic God who's just like a clockmaker who sets the universe spinning and then walks away. No, he is mindful of us and he cares for us. And this makes life meaningful, significant, worth living, that our Creator thinks of us, cares for us, and gives us a job to do. Keep reading. Verse 5, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and all oxen, And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. If you've ever started a Bible study, whether or not you've, uh, or a Bible reading plan, whether or not you've finished it or not, you know what this is quoting. What is this quoting? Genesis 1. Turn, Turn there if you have your Bible open. Go ahead and turn to Genesis 1 with me. Most of us have read, you know, the one-off verses like John 3.16 a lot, but in terms of full chapters, there's probably no chapter we've read more than Genesis 1, because every time you start a Bible reading plan, you at least get to this point. (laughs) So look at Genesis 1, verses 26 and 28, and and if you want to keep your finger in Psalm 8, we'll come back to it, but, but just compare the language that is used. We're going to look at verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Over what, God? (laughs) Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. When we compare ourselves to the stars, we might feel rather insignificant, admittedly so. But after reading Genesis 1, like David did, we should be in awe of God. Why? Well, consider with me a few things that God grants us uniquely as human beings. First of all, God has given us dignity. Humans are uniquely different than all other creatures in so many ways, but particularly in our intellectual, relational, and our spiritual qualities, our capacity for those things. We share equal value, whether you're male or female, rich or poor, healthy or sick, Each one of us owes each other that kind of respect because we bear the image of our creator God. And most significant, the most dignifying thing is that we were made for relationship with God. We were made to be like him and we were made to be with him. Second, God gives us authority. Psalm 8 and Genesis 1 use this word dominion. We are to exercise dominion over that which God has created. We are to subdue it. I love how 
John Mark Comer describes this in his book, Garden City. We are image bearers created to rule, to partner with God in pushing and pulling the creation project forward, to work it, to draw out the earth's potential and unleash it for human flourishing, to cooperate with God in building a civilization where his people can thrive in his presence. That's what we were given, the authority of dominion. And third, God has given us a responsibility. Our authority is not our own. It is not something that we create. It is something that we receive. It is derived from God himself. He is the owner and operator, and he simply deputizes us as his managers, stewards over what he has created. Stewards who will cultivate what he has given us. What that means is our country is not our own. Our church is not our own. Our house is not our own. Our family is not our own. Even our, our, our job and even our own bodies are not our own. We belong to God, and we are simply stewards over the things that God has created. Therefore, we are responsible to him. And it's here that I want to call a time out. I want to take time to reflect on this because what we see in Genesis 1 and in Psalm 8 is this glorious perspective about the nature of the way that human beings were created. And it's truly glorious. But we need a little bit of a reality check. God has created us in his image. We're supposed to be like God, pointing other people to him. We're supposed to bring peace to the world by doing what is right and just. But that simply doesn't happen, at least not always. Every human being, with one notable exception, has failed to live up to this high standard. We, we just read Genesis 1, just two chapters later in Genesis 3, we read about how Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation of the serpent. They rebelled against God, and our relationship with God, with other people, and with the world was, was tainted, was, was shattered, was broken. We've marred the image. No matter where we turn, it seems like we cannot escape the brokenness of this fallen world. Consider the world today. Here are just a few of this past week's news headlines. Ebola outbreak puts Democratic Republic of Congo's neighbors on high alert. Nursing home abuse frequently goes unreported, government agency finds. Thousands of killed or missing indigenous women and girls are victims of a Canadian genocide, a report says. When you consider the news, <laughs> what's going on in our world, you can't help but see the brokenness. Or consider the brokenness in your own life. You may have experienced abandonment or abuse. You may be currently in a really difficult job or be at odds with someone in your family. You may be experiencing 
health issues or struggling with a besetting sin. And it's as if suffering, pain, and death is inescapable, as if it's become normal in this world. And yet everything inside of us screams, this isn't normal. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And Paul tells us why we feel this way. In Romans 8, verses 20 through 22, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This corruption, this creation that has been subjected to futility, is not something that can be righted by any work that we can do. We simply cannot do enough good to right our wrongs. And what's scary is when we tune out the static of the inner murmur inside and all of the external pressures and busyness outside, we may have to conclude that there is no hope. When you see the brokenness of this world and the fact that nothing we've been able to do has been able to right those wrongs, Maybe all we can do is despair. What hope do we have? In C.S. Lewis's beloved tale, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he tells a story about the evil white witch that kills the great king, the lion, Aslan, on a stone table. But the stone table cracks. And Aslan comes back to life. And Susan and Lucy Pevensey hug his mane and ask, what does it all mean? It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic There is a magic deeper still that she did not know. Her knowledge goes back to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery, was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack, and death itself would start working backward. Psalm 8 depicts this very triumph. Don't believe me? Look at it. Look at it. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hand and you have put everything under his feet. What is he talking about? It's not just the creation of man. Hebrews 2 tells us 
that this is actually a psalm about Jesus. Here's what he writes. Now, in putting everything in subjection to Christ, God left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. That's very true. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death, so, but, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And that's that point when Lewis writes, death itself will start working backward. Our creator and our king, the Lord of the universe, he submitted himself on our behalf. He was made lower than the heavens, lower than the angels, lower than the heavenly stars, that he might be incarnated as a human being to share our suffering and to face the consequences of our sin. He suffered unto death. And now he has been crowned with glory and honor as our creator, yes, but also as our redeemer. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ. So friend, if you're a Christian, lay hold of this hope. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Praise God. And entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. And we implore you, therefore, if you're not a believer, then hear the words of Paul. What is he imploring you to do? We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we ask this question, who are we? We are created in the image of God and redeemed by the work of Christ to uniquely display the glory of God as stewards over his creation. And now we can ask our final question, how should we respond? First, God is the creator of all things. This means that you and I are responsible to him. This is true for anyone who's in this room Anyone who's listening to this recording, anyone that you have ever met or will ever meet, it's true of them and it's true of you that God is our creator. And as such, he has creative rights over what he has made. We owe him. 
We, were, we are responsible to him. And second, God is the Lord over all things. Satan and his kingdom of darkness is at work. Satan opposes God, but Jesus reigns over all. Jesus is Lord. Nothing can dethrone him. He is the only sovereign. Though God's lordship is true in a cosmic sense, he's lord over the entire universe, we must be clear, though, that David also means this in a personal sense. So when, when we say that Jesus is Lord, that, that may very well be true in a cosmic sense. But let me ask you, is it true for you in a personal sense? What, what do I mean by this? Well, David is essentially uh, a, a songwriter for a worship team. He's not only declaring that God is factually sovereign over all things. He is declaring with the assembly that he is our Lord, his Lord. And today, you are gathered in a similar assembly. We are gathered together to hear the Lord speak through his word. We are here to submit to the Lord as a corporate body of believers. We are here to worship his majesty. That's true for us corporately, but is that true for you personally? To our creator, to our Lord, our redeemer, David says, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So how should we respond Here's how we should respond. As we behold the glory of God, we worship his majesty as our creator and our Lord. And it'd be valuable for us to take a moment to reflect, to consider, to ponder, to meditate, to wonder, to enjoy God's majesty. Because this ministry of reconciliation is an ongoing work that is worked out in our lives and in our world today. What it means to follow Jesus is that you will progressively learn to live in right relationship with God, with people, and with the world. That's what God is doing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we're to live in right relationship with God, this means that we trust God's promises. It means that we do not ignore our sin, but we confess it. It means that we seek help and we live in community with his church. If we are to live in right relationship with people, then we need to be those that forgive. We need to be those that serve. We need to be those that share the hope of Jesus with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers. 
And if we're to live in right relationship with the world, this often goes overlooked in many churches and in many sermons. But if we're to live in right relationship with the world, we need to work with excellence. We need to promote ethical standards in our workplaces, that which promotes God's righteousness and justice. We need to apply biblical wisdom in the areas of civic involvement, business practices, responsible stewardship of the earth's resources, and so much more. You see, when you take time to consider this ministry of reconciliation, when we're drawn in to relationship with God, not only is our relationship with God reconciled, but God continues that ministry of reconciliation with other people and with the world. And this new life only comes when we submit ourselves to the Lord of the universe. We have been granted the amazing dignity of being made in the image of God. Perhaps greater still is the fact that even when we had broken the image, Christ died to redeem and restore us. So if you're like me, there is a lot of static in your life. There's static in your heart and mind, that inner murmur, self-talk. There's also a lot of static outside, um, the, the hectic pace at which we live life in the Western context, especially here in America, it's crazy. You know, I, I feel like I always have to have my phone in my hands for every email and text and social media post, comment and like. It, it's amazing to me how much static is in my heart and in my world. But here's the thing. It's not disorienting to quiet the static, to be without your phone. It's actually reorienting. It's reorienting you to what you were created for and what you were redeemed for. And so like David, we need to take time to reflect, to meditate on the work of God in our lives and in our world. And like David, as we behold the majesty of our king, we worship the Lord as redeemed stewards over his creation. As we behold the majesty of our king, we worship the Lord as redeemed stewards over his creation. Let's pray. God, you are the creator of the world and you created us. You created me. God, you're the Lord over the whole universe. You're the Lord of this corporate body. You're my Lord. I pray that you would claim lordship in the lives of every person listening to this preacher preach. God, I pray that we would submit to your supremacy, that we would come under your lordship, that we would recognize our limitations, our inadequacy, our inability, that there is nothing that we can do, no good 
to right the wrongs. I pray that we would lay hold of Jesus, the suffering servant who is willing to be subjected, to be submitted, to be humbled, to be made a little lower than the angels so that he might experience our suffering and pay the penalty for our sin so that he might reconcile us to God so that death itself might start working backward. Today, God, we confess sin. We thank you for Jesus. We praise your holy name. And we say with David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen.